message that I want to share with you is called The Secret to Spiritual Power. The Secret to Spiritual Power. Lord, I pray that as I share this message, you will quicken it by your Holy Spirit. For, Lord, you have been dealing with my heart, with our heart, with your church. Lord, would you release today your spiritual power in this house? Lord, it does not matter, many or few. It matters that you are the one we serve. So, Lord, would you have your way today? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'd like to share with you a piece of writing from G.D. Watson. G.D. Watson was an old-timer from the mid-1800s. He writes, In order to have the abiding secret of power, we must consent to seeming failure for Jesus. I don't know how that thought may strike you, but if you will look at the great crisis, <clears throat> the great crisis events in the Bible, and see the lives of people of great faith, you will find over and over again that the sweep of power turned on the pivot of a perfect willingness to fail utterly in the eye of the world. Those who work with God cannot be failures, but there are times when from our standpoint and feelings, everything seems to fail utterly. And our quiet acquiescence in such apparent failure for Jesus' sake, while it closes the valve on the creature side, it opens the divine side for the inflow of the energy that moves the universe. It is very easy for even sanctified souls to become attached to their work and to want it to succeed as their work. It is so easy for devoted persons running camp meetings, conventions, faith homes, missions, or any kind of philanthropic or spiritual enterprise to become greatly attached to the enterprise itself and to have an overwhelming desire for success. But a close analysis of the heart will often reveal the fact that the craving for success is because we are putting ourselves into the affair. And the Holy Ghost, who searches all things, finds out the terrible secret that, after all, 
It is self that wants success. Now, in order for God to get all the glory, he must blister the fair face of seeming success and make us die to ourselves in our work. And then he can accomplish results greater than we dream. I spoke with a man this week, a wonderful Christian man. And when I pressed him on on what Jesus is saying to him, on what he's doing, he's an entrepreneur. I pressed him on this. And he said to me, I am not a normal person. I was born to do great things. I want to be a great success. The question was then, does that mean you want to make a lot of money? No, I'm not interested in making a lot of money. What I'm interested in is being a great success so that I can bless other people. So that I can have a ministry. So that I can help churches. So that I can have resources. God wants us, he said, to be prosperous. Jesus had a treasure. So obviously he had money that he needed held. As I listened to this man, my immediate response was, yes, God does want us to be a great blessing. And God does want us to have resources. But the more I thought about what he had said, the more troubled my spirit became. Because in the midst of his plans, there is a self-ownership that is extremely dangerous. I fight with this same issue. All of my life, I've wanted to be successful, and every time I've tried to be successful, God has utterly crushed it over and over and over and over. Now, the National Prayer Chapel, it's laid in the dust. Reproach, shame. God has blistered the face of the National Prayer Chapel. I know why. God wants the glory for what he's told us he will do. He is going to bring revival and thousands will come and kneel before Jesus and be transformed. Listen, Jesus does not want us to get wedded to his work instead of to him. 
we are so frail, even after we are sanctified, and although our depravity is purged away, all of our faculties are so weak that God must keep our wings clipped or we would fly over the bounds. Some of you may not know what the bounds are, but any person who becomes serious about Jesus will soon discover that he has very clear boundaries and he does not want us flying out of those. There is a narrow path of light. And if we move out of that light, we are in the darkness. A great many do jump the track. The man that never feels he has anything to boast of in his work, but always looks at the work as being nothing to his credit, is the one who is always at the point where he is willing to be counted a failure in the eyes of men. Read the record of great faith enterprises such as Wesley or George Mueller or Bishop Taylor. See how thousands of times in these men's lives They've had to consent to eternal failure in the eyes of men. Not only of the world, but in the eyes of philosophers, churches, ministries, renowned ecclesiastics. Note their solitary struggles in the prayer closet. Their solitary mountain peak convictions. The lofty possibilities they saw that no one else could see. See how they surpassed all the law makers in their law, outstripped college professors in their teaching, eclipsed earthly bankers in their handling of money. How they put to shame the idleness and shiftlessness and unbelief of the majority of nominal Christians around them. And in order to achieve such great results, they had constantly to lie in the dust, to bear criticism, coldness, contempt from those whom they expected would help them. That criticism and that coldness and that contempt is especially painful from the very ones who said they would help as they turn and walk away with judgments. And I want to just say very quickly, I've learned that when I allow anger to rise up in my heart against a man or a woman, the Holy Spirit withdraws from me. He will not abide anger or bitterness in my heart. The surest way to cause God to withdraw his spirit is to get angry. Why? Because we get angry because we are not getting what we want. We refuse to lie in the dust. We refuse to humble our heart. 
we maintain the bitterness of our heart and the Holy Spirit withdraws. And I remember the day when the Lord came in power on my life in a revival move in in a high school academy that I was attending. And that day I cried out to God over my bitter anger because at that point, if you looked at me wrong, I started throwing punches. I was right, a trigger, a hair trigger for rage and anger and, and fighting. And I was known in the school as a fighter. Don't, if you mess with him, plan on killing him. Well, I sat in that chapel where the Holy Spirit fell. And I knew I had to confess that anger. And it had to be removed from my heart. And sovereignly, God, just like that, removed that bitter anger. I have not been in a fight since that day. I've never punched anybody again. It was done. It was finished. It was over. God removed it. But now, as an adult, what I've learned is that under that anger, there was a deeper demon that had to be dealt with. And that was self-righteous judgment. Why would one person judge another? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because you think you're right and you think they're wrong. And if you're right and you think they're wrong, then judgment flows out of that. And as soon as I begin to make judgments about another person, the Holy Spirit begins to withdraw. Because judgment of another person is just a deeper level of the bitter anger that rises in a man's heart when he doesn't get his own way. And so when one person begins to feel judged by another, we could use another word. When one person begins to feel controlled by another, Control is simply another expression for judgment. Except in that case, I expect to be able to pass my judgment and force that person to do what I want them to do because I'm right and they're wrong. They're stupid. They're dumb. And the Holy Spirit leaves. And there's a broken relationship. And then comes, of course, the anger from the person who's been judged. And then the one who's controlling says, see, why are you always getting mad at me? Why are you so stupid? And so it's all their fault. But it was my judgment that caused them to begin to be angry. Success in the spirit comes as we lay down our anger and we lay down our judgments And we allow ourselves to be laid in the dust. And we receive the criticism without defense. Now, please, guys, I'm not very good at what I'm saying. We receive the criticism without defense. We receive the coldness by showing warmth. 
we receive the contempt by showing respect. And the most painful ones are the ones we expected help from, but instead receive the criticism and the coldness and the contempt. And now the real test is, and this is the pivotal point of where the power of God begins to flow, where I'm willing to just lay in the dust and be nobody. That person over and over and over again has to say in their hearts, amen to perfect failure. Now this becomes particularly difficult when you have family members, you have children, you have close people in your heart who look at you and say, I cannot respect you because you are such a failure. And if we want the power of God to flow, we're going to have to say, Amen. It's all right. Tears, perhaps, groaning, certainly, in the privacy of the prayer closet, not in the public square. Esther was told by Mordecai to do a certain thing, a daring thing to save the Jews. She said, if I do this, it will involve my death. Please send word back to Mordecai, she said. I will comply with the terms. I will hazard my life. And if I perish, I perish. That heart agreement to perish, to die and be buried in disgrace, was the key that unlocked the prison door and let a whole nation go into liberty. I am so grateful today <clears throat> for the privilege of being a failure because I'm right at the faucet where the power of God is turned on. I am so filled with joy today that I can lay in the dust and not be angry. That I can lay with contempt and reproach and be called a wicked sinner, be cursed with wicked curses, and have the peace of God in my heart and say, Amen, it's all right. There was the secret of power when the great monarch of Babylon rebuked the three Hebrews for not worshiping his image. They responded, Be it known unto you that we shall not bow down to your image. The God that we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if not, 
we will not bow down to your image. The secret of power lay in that expression, but if not, if we live by faith and walk with God, there will be many times in our lives when similar tests will confront us and similar furnaces blaze for our destruction and to go through unscorched, we must carry that great but if not in our hearts. And you may be scorched and blistered. The prayer chapel is scorched and blistered today. Is your life also scorched and blistered? Some of you, I know the answer is yes. The real value of any work we do for God can often be measured by the amount of difficulties in the way of doing it or else by the effort of Satan to destroy it after it's done. In the book of Revelation, Satan stood to devour the man-child as soon as he was born. This is true of every work of God. I know a number of weeks ago, some of us began to meet before the worship service and before the prayer time. And our prayer was, Lord, would you do in the prayer chapel whatever you must do to remove the dark spirit of criticism and gossip? Will you do whatever you must do to stop the judgments and set us free that we could come together and rejoice in your presence. I would have been more careful praying that prayer had I known how blistered we would become. But I know that every true work of God where he is going to break out, Satan will come to devour it before it can be born. So when you receive a great blessing from the Holy Spirit, Satan will soon come to try to destroy or pervert it. Satan will find human tools, oftentimes within the church, to blast or check the gracious work if possible. He will find a man or a woman in the church who will do everything in their power to stop the work of God. In such seasons, the true servant of God must consent to the seeming failure of his labors and at the same time go right on working and commit the work to the absolute care of God. This last week, I did three days of offertory a total of $500 was pledged, leaving us $800 short 
of what was needed to cover radio for the month of, of June. One of the men who normally contacts me at the end of every month and says, Ray, how much are you short? Did not contact me. And I prayed and said, Lord, do I send them a text and just tell them where we're at? The Lord said, no. I put in the offering plate today an offering from one precious man who listens to the broadcast every day a check for $1,000. The Lord delivered. I've watched as the Lord has moved in the hearts of his people to provide the resources that we could continue or we would not even be here today. So on one side, every public perspective is that the prayer chapel is an utter failure, but it has been given over to the absolute care of God. The radio has been given over to the absolute care of God. There is nothing of me in it or fighting for it. It is totally in the hand of Jesus. I will do exactly what he instructs me to do with a disinterest. With a disinterest. So that I will not identify myself with the success or failure of the radio or the success or failure of the prayer chapel. This is the work of Jesus. Now the same must be true with your work. There must be a total disinterest on your part in your work, allowing the Holy Spirit to bring forth for you and your family what he desires to bring forth. Jesus said in John, the 15th chapter, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one remaining in union with me and I with him, this one bears much fruit because apart from me, you are not able to do anything. A grapevine does not produce grapes all year around. It is pruned pruned so severely that you would think by looking at it that it was dead. I don't like pruning. If I can't have grapes, let me at least have a covering of foliage that makes it appear successful. <laughs> that is not the way of the Lord. It is not the way of the Lord. And we have been pruned severely. We have been laid in the dust. We have experienced coldness and contempt, judgments and criticisms. 
And we must say amen to that pruning. And I know some of you in your personal lives have experienced identical agony of criticism, of judgments. How can you say, I'm waiting on Jesus? Because without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we cannot produce. For the kingdom of heaven, we can produce for the flesh. I'm not interested in producing for the flesh. I want what the Spirit of God wants to give us. And I want you to have in your personal life what God wants you to have. 